Okay, well, welcome to Thursday morning's meeting uh, seminar. I'm Ryan Booth. I'm going to be presenting Country Living by the Numbers. And this pres presentation is basically what does it cost to go out to the country on a piece of land, develop that piece of land, and put a house on it or other buildings. We've got a couple other buildings as well. That's the goal of the seminar. A few little preliminaries to get started. Uh, disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer uh, or an accountant or a expert in a lot of fields, even though we'll be covering a general knowledge of those fields, so you're getting what you're paying for here, which is zero. <laughs> a little something if you break the class down. But Okay, everybody's in, having a seat. I got handouts. Do you want me to use a microphone? Can you hear me okay? Or do, is everybody able to hear me okay? Or should we use the microphone? I don't want to try to, if I get, I've used the mic in here, we're going to be really loud in the next two seminars. So try not to do that. So. Take one, pass it down, pass it to the back. Everybody gets a handout. Okay, any questions before we get started? Everybody good? Awesome. Let's start with a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and study about country living, particularly what it takes to move there. We thank you for the energy and the ability to accomplish these tasks. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, as I mentioned, I'm Ryan Booth. I'm a general contractor in California. I also have specialties in heating, air conditioning, and electrician. And on top of that, I'm a real estate agent in California as well, but that's not really my active field, mostly in construction. We will have questions at the end, so please write down any questions as we go through. You may get them answered further in the presentation. If not, please write them down as we go, and I will hopefully have 10, 15 minutes at the end of the program to answer questions. Let's roll. This is going to be fast, so hang on to your seats. Two rules. Do your own research, and these, memorize these rules. I'm going to be referencing them throughout the program. Two rules. Do your own research. What is your time worth? If your time is worth than more than about $150 an hour, get up and leave this class right now. This one's not for you. This is how to do it as economically as possible. If you're over $150 an hour and you don't feel like doing all the work yourself, go out, hire a contractor, do what you want to do, pay for it. Okay? And I'm probably wrong. What I mean by that? Local rules. 50 states, 3,100 count, counties, 19,000 cities, 29,000 fire departments, 200 major utilities, 13,000 school districts. Every one of these has its own set of schedule of fees and minor rules that are different. So you think, well, this is an impossible task. How do we even talk about this? Well, guess what? About 80 to 90, 85 to 90 percent of the rules are the same across the entire country, but there's the last 10 percent that are different by every single locality. In addition to the local rules, you, they all work off the same International Building Code, Electric Code, whatever. This is all the rules that we work by in the construction industry and need to keep track of. This is what you're up against when you go to develop a piece of property. You have to fit within this box of regulation. Okay, that's presentation psychology 101. I threw in a bunch of random facts to start. Look like I, look like I know what I'm doing. Okay, we're going to do a comparison of two locations. I picked these two locations because they're representative either end of the broad scale of the economics of developing a piece of land. Once you ask the county of California, it's representative of rural California, and it's going to be the higher end cost-wise for the majority of the rural west. The other one is Anderson County, Texas. They have zero rules. They're going to be the bottom end of the cost spectrum. 
So we're going to develop a price property and look at these two locations and see what the actual dollars are at the end of the day. These are the key aspects when you look at a piece of land to buy, a bare piece of land. These are the four key aspects you want. You want access, legal and practical. You want water in, well, city water. There's limited exception you're going to have river or, or creek or drainage ditch or those kind of things, maybe a spring. Very rare examples. Um, water out, septic or sewer. And then the power is either off-grid or utility. The first three are economic make or breaks. They can make a piece of property uneconomical to actually build a house on due to regulation. That is reality. The last one, there's options. You can almost always go off-grid if power is not economically available. We're going to start with access. Unfortunately, today's uh, talk, I don't have time to go through every little bit of access. We could spend an hour just talking about the regulations involved of roads, extension of roads, expanding, meeting regulations, etc. Main point is, is it legal? In other words, uh, if you were in Chad Cruiser's talk yesterday, he touched on... Um, he touched on easements and those kind of things to legally access a lot. Is it practical? For instance, in a regulated, we're going to talk a lot about a regular environment, so I'm just going to say regulated environment such as California. Your road, if your driveway, for instance, if it's more than 10% slope, it has to be paved. If it's more than 15%, it has to be paved with concrete. If it's over 20%, you can't put it in. Fire department rules. They won't, it's not legal access. You can't put that driveway in. So if you're on a steep slope, you need to find out a way to mitigate that, either doing switchbacks or other things to lessen the slope of your driveway. And economically, as you can see, driveways take a lot of space, and it's expensive to pave driveways. So we don't necessarily want to develop that. Here is a plot plan. This is actually from a house. I'm doing a set of plans for Shasta County right now, getting ready to submit them in a couple of weeks. You can see the driveway right here. You have a turnout required if it's over about 200 feet in length. So you have a turnout and you have a turnaround here at the house. It's also a minimum requirements. These are specified by the fire department. You have to meet these to be able to get a building permit for that property. This one is going to be gravel. It's a relatively flat lot. Gravel is okay. It's an all-weather <coughs> all road of, I don't know, it's supposed to be around 40,000 40, uh, 40, pound rating, etc. Basically, you can drive a fire truck down at any, any 365 days a year and not sink in the mud. That's the goal. What's that cost? Well, you got gravel up here, one and a half, three dollars a square foot, asphalt four to five, concrete six to seven, and if you need to put a culvert in, that's a really rough number of 1,500 bucks. If you're in a location where you have a stream alongside of a road, you have to put a culvert in, you're gonna probably be five or $6,000 to get a permit for a water land or a wetland incursion and other issues like that in a regulated environment. Anderson County, Texas, guess what? $800, you hire Bubba of his tractor to go spread some mound up so it drains a little bit, you're done. No specs, no requirements, nothing. Generally, that area is mostly sandy, so it, it also drains well, and you're probably not going to get stuck. Water in. Actually, we'll back up one second. A point on economic access. There are a lot of existing lots, existing houses that you could not build today. They were put in 20, 30, 50, 100 years ago. They have legal access to them, but you couldn't build a new house at the same location. Near San Diego is a couple of good examples of this, of small communities that are built back into a valley or somewhere with a long access road, maybe a mile or two long, and there's maybe 15 or 20 houses back there. There are other good lots among those houses, but the, to be able to get a building front of this lot, you have to go ahead and widen and improve two miles of road 
you're talking maybe four or $500,000 to be able to legally build on one of those other lots. So it's an economic impossibility to develop one of those other lots. This is what we look at with a lot of these properties is it's not a legal impossibility, it's an economic impossibility. If you want to throw enough money at it, you can solve most of these problems. Asterisk, Cal Fire just put in rules this year and last year about one lane roads, or not that, dead end roads of maximum lengths. They're still figuring those out. So if you're in California, do your research on dead end roads and how far that can be off of a main artery. You may not be able to develop a lot at all just because of the regulation issues involved. Keep that in mind if you're planning to buy in California. That's really it for access. Unfortunately, we don't have, to go in, have time to go into a lot more details. Water in. I'm going to talk about water wells mostly here because the assumption is you're probably probably in the country on a fair amount of acreage you probably won't have city water you may have city water you may not that's a, some places have in very rural areas have city water available you may not want to use city water for agriculture because of the cost it's very expensive to buy water usually unless it's a particular water district dedicated to agriculture any guess on how many people uh, percentage of population in california that is actually on city water versus wells percentage 95. Not too bad. Pretty good on this. 95% of Cal people in California are on city water, not on wells. By the way, there, if somebody has questions about rainwater uh, collection, the reality is the economics to caption store it, store it usually aren't in place. And second of all, we don't get enough rain to make that economical. A real, off cal real rough calculation is one inch of rain on a 1700 square foot house will give you about 1500 gallons. So you get one inch of rain, you get about 1,500 gallons. The average house uses about 300 gallons a day. That's not including agriculture, that's just a household use. So there, five days, you already burned through your inch of rain, and you get 15 inches of rain in California a lot of places a year. You do the math. Not enough water. What does it cost to put in a well? Huge variable. It's almost, it's almost something you can't predict. I'm using a random number, 9,700 here, because this mythical thing we're developing in Shasta County happens to have usually about a 150-foot well and it costs about so much a foot to drill, put in a pipe, sleeve it if you need to because it's got sand partway down, et cetera. There's a round number for you. That could be $60,000 for a 1,500-foot well in northern Arizona, or it could be $5,000 for a 50-foot well in Anderson County. You don't want to go more than 50 feet deep in a lot of locations in Anderson County because then you punch through into the sulfur layer. You want to stay on top where the good water is. There's variables there you have to know by local thing. If you are going to drill a well, go talk to local well contractors. That's your best source of information. What's rule number one? Do your own research. Exactly. Go talk to contractors, all that kind of thing. Quest, quick question. There's, a, there's talk of uh, the state mandating or they will hang meters on your private wells. There is a lot of discussion about that. They're already starting to tax ag wells. They're not going to probably hit residential wells anytime soon. Arizona owns all the water in the state, but you're still allowed to use personal residence water and some ag water around your house, like a garden, depending on your location. If you're, say, in Flagstaff, Arizona, within the city area there, they're short on water. If you punch a well down and you get 50 gallons a minute, they're going to come by and say, you know what, that's great. We're going to give you 10 gallons a minute. We're going to take the other 40 for the city. That's the way it works in all locations. In the West, water is king. It's gold. You want water. And speaking of water rights, very briefly, the water rights first in counts. You want water rights from 150 years, years ago. You won them with the property. It's very unlikely you'll get water rights from a drainage ditch 
or a lake or a river going by your property or a creek that even runs through your property because those are probably sold to the neighbors 50 years ago and you don't have them. That's very likely. So they are not necessarily tied to the property unless they come with the property because they can be sold off to surrounding areas. Okay, moving on. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time. By the way, if you put a well in and say it's five gallons a minute, well, that's barely enough to run a garden hose. You put in a storage tank, that's 7,200 gallons a day. So it's, you have to put in a storage, but a, even a five gallon per minute well will adequately run a house and a large garden very well. Water out. It's got to go somewhere, right? So septic is a really big challenge in a regulated environment. Why? Setbacks. Guess what? You have an existing well, draw a 150-foot circle around that. You can't put a septic system anywhere within 100 feet of that in Shasta County. A lot of places are 100, maybe 75, depending on your local rea uh, area. Rule number one again? Do your own research. Okay, so we have an existing leach field here on this particular property if you're putting one in. Now, you can't have a well within 150 feet of that. What's this light gray area? Any guess? 100% reserve area. Anywhere in California you put a leach system in, basically, you have to have enough area for the, for the actual leach field, and then you have to have that much area again as a 100% reserve capacity. In case that system fails or you need to expand it, you have that at reserve area. This becomes an issue on either rocky or steep lots or swampy lots or any of those things. You have a lot of challenge getting a septic system approved. If you are going to buy land, land usually has a longer escrow time. You don't have to rush it through as quick as a house, particularly in today's market. Get an approved system layout on it. Go down, hire a septic contractor or a soils engineer. They'll go out, they'll do a perk test. You can do your own perk test in some jurisdictions and the county will accept it. Most of them you can't. They'll do a perk test. They'll do a leach line layout. They'll do calculations. You'll go down to the health department of county. You submit it and say, I want this approved for this lot. And they'll look at it. They'll send an inspector out and say, yeah, you can put that on that lot. Boom, you have your approval, you know you can get a septic system on it. If you don't do that, you don't know. The reality is you got a 10 acre lot, it's mostly sand, you're up on top of a hill, you don't have any creeks going through it, yeah, you're gonna be able to get a septic system on if not a problem, it'll drain well, etc. You're in a lowland with, with clay or something like that, and eh, you might wanna check on it first. And all those plain economics, they calc off the perk test how many feet of leach line you need, and that costs more if it doesn't drain as well. This is a septic system. Basically, you have a tank, two-compartment uh, two tank, and then you have the leach field out here that the, the water runs out to and drains into the ground. Why is the price difference? Tank costs the same. It's a lot shorter leach lines, 80 feet in Anderson County. It's a lot of it's sandy area, so if you're in a sandy zone, no problem. Up here, you're probably gonna be spec'd at, at 300 feet. Anderson County, if you have more than 10 acres, you don't require to call, you're not required to pull a septic permit. If it's less than 10 acres, you are. That's the only permit you're required in the county. You don't have to get building permits or anything else, no inspections. In Shasta County, you're going to have to get an inspection on the leach system. It's got to be signed off, approved, etc. And you're probably not going to dig that by hand, so you need a little bit of money to hire a guy for backhoe to go out and dig your tank and your leach field. And I would say septic is probably one of the biggest catches for developing property, particularly if you have limited space to do it. Quick question. You, it's, it would be usually be something you'd do on your own dime prior to closing or during the discovery phase. Okay. And if it is found that this is an issue, can you use that as leverage to bring down negotiations? It would be, it would be, you could try that or it would be a reason to walk, one of the two. Gotcha. Where do you draw the line typically? Uh, well, if you can't economically do a septic system, the property is worthless to you, so walk. <laughs>
So. Um, this is going to be, these rules are going to be basically the uh, same anywhere in California. Gotcha. Uh, other states are going to have variations of those, uh, but most states will have some version of how fast the perk water perk test is, calc the leach line's length off of that, and similar restrictions for setbacks from wells and waterways. Quick point is, if we had a, if we had a creek going through right here, you'd have a 150-foot setback on either side of the creek that you could not put leach lines into. So there's another factor. If you have water going through you a lot, your leach field is going to, have to be a long ways away from that. Keep that in mind, both locating your house and the practical realities of getting it proved. Power. Here's another huge variable that's really hard to predict. What does your local utility charge you to bring power in? I'm going to talk about utility power here because right after this one at 11.50, or next, the next thing, 10.15 I think it is, we are going to talk about solar power and grid tie solar, all that kind of stuff. So I'm not going to spend time here on solar. Stay for the next session, and we will talk about solar power. This is the cost for utility to bring it in. Hugely variable. Uh, this is Northern California, particularly PG&E. Uh, by the way, when I mention companies and stuff, it's not either endorsement or condemnation of them. It's just using it for economic examples. PG&E territory, you're probably looking at around $10,000 to $15,000 a pole, and you get about 270 feet a pole to bring in. 350 feet run, $20,000 plus, maybe more. Now, if you're coming down a property line and you split it with the neighbor or something they want power to, then maybe you can reduce that. But that's what you're looking at right there. Modoc County next door to PG&E in Shasta County, it's Surprise Valley Electric, it's a co-op. It's $4, $4 a foot, the same as Anderson County, Texas. So that same cost is going to cost you $20,000 plus is $1,500 for the same amount of line. Local variance makes a lot of difference on the dollars. It's not impossible, it's just what does it cost? So here you go, huge variable per pole. Then you have the fixed cost, your panel meter base, wire and conduit if you're gonna go underground to the house. Um, and I just threw an off-grid system on there, we'll talk about that next program. That is what's gonna cost you if you're gonna run typical house um, off-grid entirely. Grading. <laughs> What are you starting with? <laughs> so, um, grading, a quick word on grading. These numbers are assuming that basically a flat lot or a gentle slope, doing a little bit of cut, a little bit of fill, you know, that kind of stuff, not a lot of detail. If, as soon as you usually move either more than 50 or 100 yards in a regulated environment, you have to get a grading permit. Usually if you're getting a grading permit, you have to get a soils engineer involved because they're doing a certification on the compaction when you're done. So you're almost immediately jumping up to about five to $6,000 for the paperwork if, you have, if you're gonna move more than 50 to 100 yards depending on the jurisdiction in a regulated environment. So keep that in mind. If you're cutting into the side of a hill, you're immediately gonna have to drop another five, $6,000 on the paperwork and probably another five to $10,000 on cost for grading, equipment time, water, you name it, to make that happen. So your pad might go from $4,000 to fifteen dollars to $20,000 very quickly, depending on the existing lot and land that you're working with. Huge variables. We're assuming a kind of easy, easy lot here to work with. Quick question. Uh, Shasta County, Anderson County. It's the California, Texas examples. I should have clarified that. Thank you. Yeah, so usually 50 to 100 yards is the way you can move it without a grading permit. And then after you hit 50 to 100 yard limit, depending on the jurisdiction, you have to get the grading permit. 
And then after you get that, it's unlimited, but it's just whatever's necessity of the lot. But you have that fixed cost of grading permit, usually two to three thousand dollars, and another two to three thousand dollars for the engineering to go with it for a soils engineer to certify the compaction report when it's done. Okay, other costs. If you're working off your off your worksheet, this is down to other ca cost category. Um, LPG tank. Anybody know what LPG stands for? Yes, liquefied petroleum gas. Uh, if you want to buy your tank, they're about, uh, it's like $2,500 for a 500-gallon uh, tank right now. Still prices going up. It's probably going to keep changing. If you want to rent a tank, I just put the cost for the lines in there because usually tank, tank, tank rental is like $10 a year. But guess what? You, that company can only fill that tank. So they're going to get it back to you in the price of the gas. If you own your own tank, which you can completely do, buy your own tank, then you can have any company come out and fill anytime, call around every time you get filled up, get the best price and go for it. So that's the difference between pay, pay now or pay later. But you are going to need a propane tank for your gas appliances usually out in the country. Water storage. Shasta County, you're going to be required to have most districts, not all. Some districts don't require water storage for fire. Shasta County, if you're anywhere in Cal Fire or those other outside of some of the smaller uh, independent districts, you're going to be putting in at least a 2,500-gallon steel tank for fire protection. This isn't for you to drink. That's fire protection. It's required. So if your house burns down, they have water to pull from it, etc. And guess what? Any, any new house in California requires fire sprinklers. You're going to have to put in a high-pressure, high-flow booster pump about $1,000. Make that happen. These are required costs for regulation. Usually you're going to make that about a 4,000 gallon steel tank and you're going to do a center tap off of it so you have the top couple thousand for you to use personally to pull out of rather than buying extra tanks for yourself. So that's water storage. Anderson County, Texas, no requirement for any kind of water storage. You just put the typical pressure pump from the well and go right into the house and you're done. Okay, that is development cost roughly of a raw piece of land. Guess what? We're now ready to finally drop a house on it. There you go. You haven't, you haven't even built a house. You've just started. This is all the raw land cost to develop it. $61,000 there, twelve seven. This is the big difference you see with different locations around the country is these kind of things, not the actual structure. Structures cost similar costs to build throughout the country. It's all the other associated costs due to regulation and the different locations that cost a lot more money. Well, permits and fees at the end of the, end of the slideshow. Um, so, that's the land development cost. Now let's build a house on it. And unfortunately, I don't have time. We could have spent, we could have spent an hour, two hours just in land development, all the ifs, buts, what's, you know, stay out of trouble, etc. Unfortunately, that's not today. Okay, let's build a house. Our time's ticking. 79 square foot house. And I'm using this as just an example. Why 1,700 square feet? Why not 1,200? Why not 1,000 square feet? Really quick. Don't get stuck on square footage when, when designing a house if you're starting from scratch. Here's why. If you have a 12 square foot house, say a three bedroom, two bath, and you stretch out to 17 square feet, you're not building another kitchen, you're not building another bathroom, you're not buying another water heater, you're not buying another uh, HVAC system. All that's already paid for. So all you're, building, all you're adding is a sliver of roof, wall, and foundation. So it's very economical to add more square footage to a already developed, plus you have all the land developed costs you've already paid for. That doesn't care what size of house you're putting on it. Other than a septic system, by the way, septic systems are determined off the number of bedrooms in the house in most jurisdictions. They don't care about bathrooms or the size of the house, it's just the number of bedrooms. That's how many people live in the house full time, this idea. The only thing I'd add to that mm -hmm. square footage is for 
You do have to think about heating it. However, your exterior wall space doesn't go, you can double the square footage and only add a moderate more and more exterior wall space by just making the building bigger. So that does have a factor, but not drastically. So that's why I want 1,700 square feet because you wouldn't build a 1,200, you'd spend an extra 15 grand, you'd build a 1,700 because you get almost a third more living space in the house, much more livable. Okay, let's see what it costs to build a house. We're gonna go through this quick. Foundation, you can do raised wood floors, you can be raised wood. This is actually a 4,000 square foot house in Shasta County I was working on a couple years ago. Um, this is a raised wood floor house. You can do slab on grade. Traditionally, they've been nickels and dimes the same cost, and you, it's your preference, it's building site, it's those kind of things make the difference. With the wood prices up, raised wood floor is a little more expensive than slab on grade, but usually we kind of consider them about the same. It's more of a preference or if the lot demands something. Like you're building over a boulder pile, then you use a raised wood floor. Foundation, framing. That's a 4,000 square foot house, not a 1,700 square foot. Yes. <laughs> Roofing, siding, doors, windows, insulation, and drywall. Everything else. This completes the box, the barn, whatever you want to call it. This is the exterior of the house. This is the box. We haven't put anything inside the box yet. We don't have plumbing, electrical, kitchen, bathrooms, nothing on the interior. This is your shop right here, 54,400. That is your exterior. Why do we break it down like this? Because it's good to keep an eye on the differences because the interior, you can scale drastically in cost. You can have a, a kitchen that costs you $10,000. You have a kitchen that costs you $50,000. Fit and finish, cabinets, countertops, backsplashes, flooring, they're all huge variables. You can go bottom end or really high end. This, you could spend probably another ten dollars to $15,000 on, on really good insulation, fancier windows, and a few other things, not counting architectural changes. And that would be about as max you could burn or maybe fancy siding like rock, stucco stone or something on the outside. That's where the money comes in on the exterior, but you're not going to have a drastic change in the box. Now, would I build a house like this for myself? Probably not. I would add some interesting architectural details to that. But this is about economics, and this is about as cheap as you can get just building a rectangle box. Previous slides? Uh, if you want, we can run through them at the end if you, if you want. Or Yeah. By the way, thank you for the qu qu clarifying. I will have a section for a little bit of labor in here. All these, all these prices so far are just the parts, including all development costs. It's just the raw parts. This is zero labor. I'm making an assumption that either providing, you're probably providing the labor yourself because, again, you're trying to do it as cheaply as possible. Okay, now that we've built the outside the box, or don't have the outside the box thinking, let's go inside. Okay. Uh, by the way, next, this slide and next two, or next three slides, which one looks most professionally done? So we got, we're going to go inside now. We've got electrical. We've got plumbing. We've got heating and air conditioning. The plumbing. the plumbing did look professional. See, you guys aren't industry experts. You can already tell when a job looks good and when it does it. California, fire sprinklers. Required. Cabinets and trim. What do you want to pay for? <laughs> Everything inside the box. That's a huge sum. We could spend two hours just talking about interior mechanical systems, better insulation, you name it. Building scientists, we could go there. But for time's sake, this is where we're at. This is inside the box. 34-1, or 39-1. This is all the cabinets and trim for the entire house. 
So this is, sorry, this is everything in the house right here. Um, this is bottom of the barrel. This is pre-made cabinets at Home Depot. This is prefab countertops. This is $600 tub shower units. It's all functional. It'll all be nice to live in, but it's, there's, no, there's no bump up off the bottom line quality-wise, so to speak. That's where this house is designed. We bottom the house. This is the baseline. We're giving you the baseline numbers. Everything is going to be more. You probably can't build it for less. Labor. Let's talk labor really quick. This is the labor cost, house labor cost. This would be everything to do the framing, all, everything in the house. This is $30 an hour. This is people that kind of know what they're doing, but probably not expensive people. And this is you managing a job, ordering all the material, getting it on site, telling people what needs to be done, etc. That's you doing all the background work. This is just guys on the site doing work on day. This is probably a low number. This is you doing a fair amount of the work yourself. Guess what? Most jurisdictions, California, of course, in a lot of areas, you're a homeowner, you're gonna hire somebody to work on a job site. If they're not a licensed contractor with a signed contract, they're your employee. If they're working for you by the hour, they're your employee. Guess what? You're required to carry workman's comp, social security, and pay unemployment and run payroll. You pay them $30 an hour, it costs you $38.50. Why do you do that? Because guess what? If they swing a hammer and bust their knee, they can sue you for everything you have because you didn't carry workman's comp on them and they're your employee unless if you're paying them by the hour. If they're a signed contractor, if me with a signed fixed fee contract, I'm not your employee. I'm an independent contractor. If I bust my knee, it's on me. I can't, I can't do anything. You know, you're the, the homeowner. It's not, my, not your fault. If you're hiring them by the hour, do your research, protect yourself, okay? Yes, everybody hires handyman all day long, pays them by the hour, doesn't worry about this kind of stuff. Happens every day, all over the place, pay them cash, whatever, no big deal. You're risking your, your the liability for if they get injured because they're your employee under those circumstances. Sorry, employee labor law is what it is. Some states, Texas, you can waive, they can waive their right to workman's comp. Other states, if they have, you have less than like five employees, you can waive, waive workman's comp. Is it a good idea? Maybe not. Two reasons. One is they could probably still see you. Two, if they do get hurt at a job site, you're going to feel really bad that they're disabled for the rest of your life and you can't do anything about it. Pay to workman's comp. <laughs> That's my sister there helping out on the job site. You carry it for the time while they work for you. So as long as you have employees, you have to have the workman's comp. At the end of the day, um, it's uh, they are going to audit your books. So any check you write during that time period you have workman's comp policy for, if they're to other people that aren't on your payroll, they're going to want workman's comp on that too. So keep your books clean and put everybody on payroll if you're going to run payroll. Okay, running totals. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an accountant. Rule number one, do your own research. Okay, running totals. What are we up to? We're up to 154.5 for the house in Anderson County, or in Chasta, Anderson County is 97.2. What's the big difference to development cost? The house is almost the same. What we reduced on the actual house price that's different here, we took away the fire sprinklers, a little bit cheaper windows because they don't have to be well in urban interface certified, and a little bit less on the framing because you don't have to do quite the same structural stuff in Texas. Would I still do the same structural, structural stuff in Texas? Yes, I would. You don't have to, but I would still do it. Okay, and I did not include the labor and the running totals. That's kind of be broken out separately because you can do everything yourself, legally, in California even. You can do absolutely everything on your own house. You do not have to have any certifications or licenses. You can do all the work on your own house if you want to, including fire sprinklers. So, you cannot drill your own well, though. 
that has to be certified well driller. Running totals. Okay, plans, permits, and fees. Shasta County, engineering, 3,000. Any kind of house more than a really basic house, you're probably going to have to get engineered. Plans, if you're going to pay somebody to draw a set of plans for you that is going to get through plan, plan check about the next six months of corrections, you're going to pay probably five to six bucks a square foot for those plans. Uh, course of construction insurance. If you can't afford out of cash, cash out of your pocket to rebuild the house when it's three quarters done and burns down because somebody left oily rags from standing the cabinets on the floor and catch a place on fire, you buy a course of construction insurance so that that house, if it burns down, they'll pay to get it rebuilt again. That's why you buy it. If you can't afford to rebuild it twice, get insurance. Subdouble, 13-4. Anderson County, you can probably do a set of plans on a napkin and get away with it, 1500 bucks. You don't have to submit the plans, so none of that. You probably do want a set of plans to work off of, particularly if you're not experienced. You're going to want a good set of plans to have all the technical notes on them so you have something to base off of and order off of, et cetera. You still want the insurance unless you can afford to pay it twice, and that's your subtotal there. Permits and fees. Welcome to California. Grady permit. We already said that's a maybe, so we won't include it in our running total. Application fee, $1,400. Building, $2,000. Processing fees, $12. School fees, 4 bucks a square foot. Tra uh, traffic and environmental impacts fees, $4,000. Parks fees, not all counties have parks fees. It depends on the jurisdiction. All these fees are jurisdiction dependent, and there may be more of them, there may be less. I can tell you in the San Diego area, this package is usually between dollars and $40,000. In Modoc County, right next to Shasta County, that's probably about $6,000. It's jurisdiction dependent. Rule number one. Yep. Fighter totals. Development, 61, house, 93. Square foot price. Why do we talk about square foot price? Why do I have it listed here? That gives you a tool. You can go out and you can punch that tool and say, if I'm going to build a 2,500 square foot house, it's $110 per square foot. If I'm going to build a 800 square foot house, it's $110 per square foot. Is that true? Not exactly. And a square foot houses cost more because you still have the fixed costs of water heaters and everything else in there that you can't change. And a 2,500 square foot house is going to cost less per square foot. But usually you have a fancier fit and finish on a 2,500 square foot house, so it ends up being about the same. This is materials only, no labor. Keep that in mind. As you notice, it's not much different over here. It's, well, it's, this is included development cost, so you have that there. So you have the different price there, and you have some labor, and you have a grand total of $250,000 basically, $145,000. Most of that's in the permits, fees, and development costs for the two different locations with the associate regulations. If I was going to build that house, I'd be probably charging about $400,000 for the contract, fixed fee. Texas, probably about that. Little, labor's a little cheaper in Texas. There's those kind of factors to figure in. And no, you're not making $150,000 on that contract. You're probably making about $70,000 for eight months of work. If you want to get into the trades, talk to me afterward. <laughs> shopper garage, real quick. We'll run this super quick. If you want to build a shopper garage, this one is, it seems a little expensive because it has nothing inside of it that has 12-foot walls. So you have 50% more wall material than you do for the house. So that factors into more expensive things. Here you go. Really quick, you're $30 a square foot for the shop building. This is going to scale pretty evenly. Uh, rough material, rough, rough labor estimate. Again, that factors on labor costs, all those factors. There you go, $50,000 for a 1,200 square foot, 30 by 40 shop. 30 by 40. The house did not include a garage. In most regular environments, you're going to have to provide a car, carport at minimum. You're usually not required to have an attached garage or detached. But you do have to have covered parking. So a $2,000 carport meets that rule. Do you have to have wood trimming or could you do metal? 
You can do any kind of uh, siting you want. If it's in the rural areas, wildland urban interface zones in California, it's going to have to be Class A fire rated. So it's going to be hardy siting or metal or one of those. Uh, by the way, go price steel buildings right now. You're going to end up almost the same dollar amount. Steel's gone up a bunch. It used to be somewhat cheaper. The problem with steel buildings is they're difficult to insulate and they don't have the framing on interior to put finish on the wall. This has drywall on the inside of it. It's a nice finish instead of open studs or open insulation. It's very difficult to do have a steel building. That's why um, usually you end up looking at the total cost. You end up building one of these instead of having a steel building built because at the end of the day, you're not gaining a lot cost-wise and you make more frustration for yourself. If you're talking very large buildings, then it still becomes economic because of the trust design and other structural issues. Quick question. Yes. A shop? It's quite easy as long as you have no other violations on the property. Okay, uh, complete house. If you're going to undertake a complete house and do a lot of the work yourself, you're going to have a year's worth of time of that, at least. All the way through planning, figuring things out. Yes, someone knows what they're doing, can knock that out in about six months. You're going to spend twice to three times the time because you're learning. You have to figure out every single step for round one. If you want to do that, it's incredibly frustrating and time consuming. I think it's very rewarding. If you enjoy working stuff, I think it's super rewarding. Take on a challenge, but realize what you're getting into. What are you going to make your time for? Probably 10 bucks an hour. Where you're going to make your savings. The time you save by not paying somebody else is probably going to be making $10 an hour for your time by doing everything yourself. So there you go. What's your time worth? Rule number two. Okay, we got 10 minutes left, even though we started late. Quick question. So how open are counties to alternative systems? Like, for example, instead of a septic, so counties aren't very, their counties have a very negative attitude to things like composting toilets. So you're going to have to get some, some kind of septic system almost always. Again, and usually in a regular environment, you're not allowed to haul water either. You have to have some kind of permanent water source, a well or a creek or something of that nature. In addition to that, there are options for difficult to develop lots for septic systems, but you're usually stepping into an engineer system that's between uh, twenty dollars and $40,000. You can do mound systems, there's other options in different environments. They're just a lot more money compared to a basic system. What about alternative housing, such as straw bale, I gotta get to that in just a second. Tiny houses? Yeah, I'll be covering that in a minute. We got eight minutes left, let's roll. Okay. In other words, if you're making 150 bucks an hour, unless you want to do the work yourself, hire somebody else. You're making $10 an hour for your time. Go make 150, pay them 60, and the headache's out of your, out of your problem. That's the real economic reality. If you want to do it, absolutely go for it. It's, do it for the experience, not necessarily for the economics. But if you do it for purely economics... But the reality is you're going to have to be involved in... You are involved continuously through it, but your involvement's a couple hours a week, not, not 40 hours a week. Well, there's always problems with finding good contractors, those kind of things. Moving on, I'll have questions at the end. Write them down. Remodel. This is a topic you spend three hours on. I'm going to cover it in 30 seconds. Bottom line is you have your rough numbers for what it costs to build new. If you're taking the house down to bare studs and back again, you're almost always better just to bulldoze it down and start over from scratch. Very, very hard to determine cost. That being said, there's reasons to remodel cost savings. You're buying a house that's, you're buying a house of land for $50,000. It has all the development done, has all that kind of stuff done. You want to just do a remodel for another $50,000 and fix it up. It's probably worth it. You know what, you already know what it costs to build new, so you can compare that. Economic regulated economies. You want to live on the end of that two mile road and a house is for sale. You can't build a new one there. It's regulatory impossible, uneconomical. 
But guess what? You can still buy a house there and you can still remodel it. And you can probably even add an addition onto it. But you can't add a new, new structure. So keep that in mind. Asterisk septic systems, you can't add more bedrooms without expanding the septic system. So if you're boxed out on the septic, you're done for bedrooms. You can add other room space to the house. Uh, being able to finance a property. Getting a construction loan is difficult. You, have to have, you can't do the work yourself. You have to hire a contractor and you've got to pay their price. You can't do your own work of a construction loan. You can't, um, and it's difficult to get finance. It's a whole process. You have to qualify a little better in a standard house. It's pretty standard to get financing on any regular property. So that's easier to buy an existing property than build one from a financing side by far. Okay, quick third word on mobile homes. Uh, mobile homes are a great option. If, again, financing other things. The new modern modular homes built from a factory, brand new and dropped on the property, are very good quality. They're up there with a the baseline home, basically the same quality. Regulatory rise, there's a difference though. Mobile homes are built by state licensed manufacturers and you can't add an addition on a mobile home and get it permitted through your local county. The state has to get involved. It's an engineering nightmare because you've got to work with the county and the state together. It's very difficult to add an addition legally onto a mobile home. If you want to do structural changes to the mobile home on the inside, you have to get state permission. It's a more complicated process because of how they're permitted and licensed. So keep that in mind. Uh, don't have time for more. Okay, bad ideas. Number one bad idea in current trend these days. If you take life advice off of Instagram, do a container home. It's the worst idea out there currently. I can list a whole bunch of reasons, number, the real, real quick reasons. Layout, you're eight foot wide. It's a horrible way to try to build a house in a narrow, narrow little box. Two, you're gaining actually nothing economically because you still have to insulate it. You still have to put drywall on the inside and you still have to do the thing. everything involved on the inside. Basically, all you're doing is buying a little bit of... Uh, outside surface and some structural. By the time you poke holes in it with windows and stuff, you have to reinforce the structure anyway. So you're really not gaining anything and you're putting yourself literally in a really tight box that makes almost zero economic sense. Bad idea number two, tiny homes. Economics. I, I have, tiny homes work in certain locations. If you're in Anderson County, Texas and you're putting on the back 40 of somebody else's land and they already have water and you got a septic system to tie into, go for a tiny home. Absolutely, it makes sense. They don't work in a regulatory environment. You want to tell me regulatory, what the difference between these two are? Trick question, it's no different. Regulatory, that is exactly the same as that. They're a home-built RV. That's what a tiny home is from a regulatory standpoint. And you go, wait a minute, Los Angeles County, a lot of Los Angeles City approved tiny homes. Yes, they did. They have a city ordinance that approves tiny homes. It's about another half dozen cities in California that do. Guess what? Read the fine print. Rule number one, it has to look like a house. It has to be built by a certified RV builder. And guess what? You can only put it on lots of existing houses that are already on them. So if you already own a house in Los Angeles County, you want to stick an RV in your backyard, then yeah, you can go with a tiny home. That's where it's useful. It's not useful for other applications like on a piece of land by itself. It doesn't work regulatory-wise. Quick economics of a tiny home versus a small house. This is some, assuming somewhere like Anderson County, Texas with basically no regulations. If you want to build a tiny home, 240 square feet, you're probably $25,000 to $35,000. By the time you build a chassis, put a house on top of it, your fixed costs are the same for like uh, a mini split air conditioner and heater and water heaters and those kind of things don't change. So square footage wise, they affect everything. We're going to stick the same land development. And we're going to assume you paid $30,000 for the lot of land, five or 10 acre lot. Okay. If you can even find them that price anymore. So what's your total? $75,000. The reason I totaled this up is Guess what? You're only $15,000 more and you build an 800, almost 800 square foot house. 
that's the point. Don't look at the building itself, look at everything else with the project, the development cost, the price of land, everything else. So when you look at that, why would you spend, you know, almost $45,000 on land and development and then put a 200 square foot house on top of it? When you could put an almost 800 square foot house on it for $15,000 more. This is the economics of tiny homes. I don't have anything against tiny homes per se, other than they don't work in most regulatory environments, like 90% of the United States. And two, they don't make economic sense. And guess what? The day this house is done, it's probably worth $150,000 and you can get a loan on it that day if you want it to. You probably can't get a loan on this. Tiny homes, you can't really finance. So that's another reality. And you can turn around and sell that for whatever it's worth on the open market. Again, this, if somebody else can't finance it, they're probably not going to buy it. Realities, economics of tiny homes. Alternative building ideas. I'll sum up alternative building ideas by this statement. We're out of time just about. Here's the alternate basic statement. Any benefit you gain from this, it doesn't make economic sense in, the sen in this way. You can take regular stick-built housing or those kind of things, and you can make a house that is just as efficient or more so. If you want the architectural detail, I don't know. You can stick, stick logs outside if you really want it. Um, you can make even that shape of a stick-built house. At the end of the day, it's going to be longer-lasting, more serviceable, and it's not going to cost more. It's going to cost less in almost every circumstance. The only way some of these make sense is if your time is worth zero and you've got nothing else to do. <laughs> On top of that, most of these, you now don't have the wall stud base to put plumbing and electrical and all those other things into, etc. Bottom line is, whatever perceived advantages, energy, whatever it is, at the end of the day, you're not really gaining. You can do, accomplish the same thing with conventional construction techniques. It's probably a better project at the end of the day. Bad idea number four, prefab kit homes. Everybody I've ever been involved with has dealt with these, and we get calls to contract a regular because they get halfway in a project and they call us to try to come finish it out. And we look at them and say, no, thank you. Bottom line is, one, I'm not going to name manufacturers, but almost every manufacturer I've ever looked at specs on gr grossly underestimates the time and effort it's going to take. They're selling a kit home. They want you to buy it. How it's going to take to finish it out. So a lot of times you'll have alignment issues. You have all kinds of issues with assembling it. At the end of the day, you've got to realize that they're paying only slightly less for the raw materials than you would anyway if you're building your own house. Plus, they have some labor in it. So where are they building this magical margin that you're going to save money by buying their product? That's my way of looking at it. Straw bale houses fall on the same issue if, uh, with other economics. By the time you build them, you have to do post and beam style. It takes more time, costs more money. You have to do the hay bales. Well, hay bales rot. They can get mold. They can burn. You put, and by the time you seal those inside a, um, uh, a plaster house or whatever, you haven't gained anything economically you can't accomplish by providing a well-insulated standard wall assembly for cheaper. Good idea. Insulated concrete forms. They're economic and competitive to wood, wood's construction right now, particularly if wood prices being up, and they're an excellent building technique. They do take more labor, but they're simplistic in the sense that the average person can assemble this and make it successfully done. It's actually almost easier than a wood frame house. So this is an excellent product, and I would use this in certain locations like North Dakota or South Florida, where it's going to get a hurricane trying to blow it down. So there's reason to use this over wood framing in some locations. I'll give you a thought on wood framing. You go down the road, you see a... Um, you see a housing development of 50 or 200 homes in it going in. You see them all the time, California, et cetera. Those contractors have every reason in the world to build that house as cheaply as absolutely possible. Every economic advantage. 
and they're building 200 of them. So if they could buy prefabbed houses, modular homes, whatever, that would be cheaper, they would be doing that. They've got every incentive to do that. They build them terribly cheap to start with. Why do they use a stick frame housing? Still the cheapest. Okay, uh, resources, again, not an endorsement of these people particularly. Um, these aren't flashy, move to the country, wonderful homesteading stories. These are, if Essential Craftsman's got tons of videos on how to do stuff. They've got a whole 140 video series on building a spec house. You wanna know how to build a house and all the steps in it? Go watch that series. It's not, it's not exciting or entertaining, it's really valuable information. Matt, right here, uh, high-end building sciences. He's doing two or three, two or three million dollar homes in Texas. Guess what? You're not playing the same economic pattern, but it's good information to be aware of, of air sealing, insulations, sound sealing, heating air conditioning systems. You can't economically implement them on a baseline house a lot of times, but it's information to chew on and think through of how houses, how houses work from a building science standpoint and energy conserving. Okay, questions. Uh, let's see, we have, I think I'm supposed to start next one about, what was it, 10.15? Anyway, we'll do 10 minutes of questions. 10.30. Uh, 10.30 next one. Okay, thank you. Starting. Yes. Are there any restrictions because of environmental concerns? Yeah. The, the question again was? Environmental concerns. Environmental concerns such as? Yes, um, uh, if you have a property that has an endangered species on it, you will run into environmental issues. Your question was, uh, is there environmental concern? So yes, if you have an endangered species on a property, you will run into issues with mitigating that thing. If you have wetlands on your property, you can't touch those. If you have a stream flowing through your property, you can't really mess with that. As soon as you involve water on any property, particularly in California, be extremely careful, don't mess with it, don't touch it, check all the rules, get approvals. Um, we did a house on a lake not, or a river not too long ago, and it had, they wanted to put a dock out into the river at the back. Permits and fees are going to be about $50,000, Army Corps of Engineers, Fish and Game, you name it. They decided not to do it. The neighbor had done that, and they end up with like $100,000 in fines. So the bottom line is, if you're dealing with water anywhere in the West, do your research, be careful with it. You can't just go messing with it because it'll end up biting you down the road. If you're in Florida, half the state's underwater anyway, so they probably don't care as much. We'll go side to side. Yes? How about um, adding an outdoor bathroom or something? Outdoor bathrooms are fine. Okay. Um, you, if you're adding onto an existing facility and you're draining into the existing septic system, you're, not, you're fine. If you're adding a structure over a certain size, then you need to get a permit for that. But it's just the bathroom itself is not an issue as long as you have an already approved septic system to drain into. That's the key. Yes. Um, but if you had your own tank, what would be the cost to, or how often would you have to fill it up? Totally depends on the house. Um, if you have a 500 gallon tank on the 1700 square foot house we did here, you're probably looking at, oh, cost to fill that up. Well, it's 500 gallons, so it's like $2 a gallon. So about $1,000 every time you fill it up. If you have a modern energy efficient house and you're using that as exclusive heat source in the wintertime, say Shasta County in the mountains, you're probably going to burn through half a tank in a year. In a, in a season, maybe three quarters of tanks. So you're looking at, you know, cost of $100, $100 a month for your heating bill in the summertime, maybe gas, gas cooking as, or wintertime, sorry, and gas cooking as well. Yes, so, okay. 
Uh, I'll, I'll do, okay, questions about 3D printed houses. I'll do a 30 second synopsis. Goes back to alternative thing. You can accomplish the same task for less money and the same material. That 3D printed house is great. It's nothing but a concrete wall. It has no insulation on it. It has no structure on the inside to put your plumbing electrical into. It has no interior finish like drywall. It has no exterior finish. You can probably leave the bare concrete. You can seal it up. That would work. However, it's missing a lot of components. You think a typical wall assembly, you're going to have siding on the outside. You're going to have a weather barrier behind that. You're going to have sheeting for, for structural. You have a stud bay, which has insulation, your plumbing, electrical, whatever inside of that stud bay. And then you have drywall or something similar on the inside of that. That's a wall assembly. You still need all those critical components. You need a weather shield and, and outer surface. You need an insulation layer and you need an interior smooth layer. You need all of those to make a successful wall assembly that people want to live inside of. So a 3D printed house, yeah, you can 3D print a, a concrete house in 24 hours. You can, you can have a prefabricated house you put up in three hours, but it's missing all the rest of the components. And now you want to add a plumbing, electrical, and everything inside that house, you can have a crew in there for the next two months doing all that, and it still costs money. The 3D printed? I don't know what the cost offhand. One little research I did is it looked like it was going to be about the same cost as a standard wall assembly minus all the other components. So now you're probably caught twice the cost of a wood frame house. It's cool. It's interesting. It's not economic reality at this point, from my perspective. Thank you. Hold on a second. Uh, one back there, and then we'll come back to you. Go ahead. Uh, so we have a lot of temp uh, uh, the questions. What's the difference between modular and prefab kit homes? We have a lot of different terminology here thrown around. Um, mobile homes, the old, mobile home and modular homes, the same thing. It's a pre-built unit, has everything ready to go, and you take it out to the job site and set it on a foundation. They, the mobile home industry started using modular as a term because they didn't like the association of mobile homes. People think of the single wides when you say mobile home. So they moved modular home instead. It's a marketing ploy. Prefab kit homes are either knockdown assemblies with pre-built walls or all the studs and other things cut pre-made and, and it brought on site and you or a crew assembles it on site. And there are, this is, it's not going to be a one-off option for, for like you, but if you're doing a track home, you can have factory built homes, which are chunks of a house that are pre-built in a factory, brought out and then put it together on site. But it's not really an option for a one-off economically. Um, does it make sense in certain areas to have basements built? Basements, yes. Uh, our question is, does it make sense to have basements? Yes. And a lot of locations, it makes complete sense to have basements, whether it's uh, you live in Oklahoma and you don't want to get carried off by a tornado, if you live in the Northeast and want to use it for storage, if you live in the Pacific Northwest and want to use it for storage. Basements make a lot of sense for those options. The economics of it, you're cheaper putting a storm shelter up back than putting a basement in. I'd still put the basement in because it's a nice, cool place. You can store all your fruits or canned fruits, goods down there, etc. There's a lot of reasons for a basement. The challenges of basements, basements are always water infiltration. If you're day one, you can do lots of things that strongly mitigate that with proper water sealing. So it's probably not going to be a problem. If you're buying an existing house, that's like the number one problem with basements is water coming in. Put some pumps in, you try to keep it out, but it's damp. Would you then be able to run plumbing and electrical and all of that? You can, and actually on the racewood floor you do the same thing. It's like, a, it's like a two foot high basement. So you have all your stuff under the floor, your plumbing, electrical, heating, air conditioning, ducts sometimes, sometimes in the attic. That's a design preference, etc. Hold on a second, yes. Uh, what was the percentage you said, 10% on grade? You could if you're putting, the uh, question is what's the percentage on driveways? If you're putting a driveway in California, generally the regulation is 0 to 10%. It can be gravel or any other all-weather surface. If it's over 10% grade, 10 to 15%, it can be asphalt. And if it's over 15%, usually it has to be concrete. 
and anything over 20% is not allowed. It's a fire department access rule, and that can vary by fire district. Uh, yes, I do have a website. It's boothconst.com, B-O-O-T-H-C-O-N-S-T.com. It's just a landing page. Sorry, booth, B-O-O-T-H-C-O-N-S-T.com. It's just a landing page with email address and a phone number on it. Light construction, short construction. Question back. Um, once you break, well, the question is the economics of scale for larger or smaller houses. Usually once you break about the 1,000 to 1,200 square foot point, your economies of scale aren't going to move much beyond that because you've already hit your minimums for concrete and pumping and other things that you're going to involve that. Of course, land development costs, that's a big question. You know, you're putting in a $50,000 driveway. It's the same cost whether it's a 1,000 square foot house or a 5,000 square foot house. So that's a huge variable there. Power, another example. All those factors. So at the end of the day, ignoring the land development cost factor, the structure itself is usually not a big difference. It tends to scale about the same price per square foot because as you get larger, the entire fit and finish gets higher level. It doesn't have to, but it's usually the automatic thing that happens with houses. So you end up being the same cost per square foot roughly as it scales. And if you get really small, like under 1,000 square feet, the cost per square foot starts going up because those economy of scale, you still have to have fixed price components of that house that you can't shrink beyond a certain point. Any other quick questions? We've got another three or four minutes. Yes. Um, so is there any concerns or like um, uh, permits you need for like a sauna or how much would that uh, sauna. The question is permits and costs for saunas. Uh, sauna in itself, most of them are actually mobile on like a trailer or something like that. If you're going to build a full-size sauna, you can set it on some blocks. In California, if the building is under 120 square feet, it doesn't usually require a permit like storage sheds and those kind of things. A sauna would probably fit in that category. The challenge is uh, running permanent electrical or gas to it becomes a little tricky on the permit side, but it's not something that most jurisdictions are going to get upset about particularly. Sauna, to build a sauna... Depends on if you make a fancy one insulated, if like tile interior or just a wood box with a heater in it, you're probably starting around $2,000 for a sauna and the parts to do it. You can buy kits that you can assemble, et cetera, like, like cedar hot tubs, same idea, uh, like a cedar sauna, you're probably three to 5000 for the kit type thing. It's quite nice. Yes. So it, it's basically, the question is, why are the economic restrictions on, on improving driveways for new construction? So here's what happens in any new construction setting in, in a regular environment. So a house, was, say there's a house, it's, it's sitting there, it's been there 100 years. Well, permits that, permitting in most locations didn't come in until 1960s. So that predates any kind of regulation whatsoever. So it's a grandfather, it's existing, it's fine, it's good by itself. So if you want to go next, to, next door to it and build a house, a new house, you have to meet all current codes right now. Good advice on mobile homes. You can't drop an old mobile home on a new lot in California because now that mobile house has to meet new construction standards and usually it's uneconomical to upgrade that to those standards. Particularly if it's more than about 10 years old, you might as well just go get a brand new mobile home. So if you're looking at, oh, let's get a used mobile home and drop it on a lot. No, it has to meet standards for a new mobile home today if you're going to put it on a new lot that it didn't already exist on. Keep that in mind. So usually the grandfather stuff gets fine. Anything new, so the fire department, you know, maybe 30 years ago made a rule. Oh, all new roads have to be 16 foot wide paved with 20 foot graded, and that's the rule for the access road. Well, guess what? The road there is 12 foot wide and goes, it's on the side of a cliff, so you've got nowhere to grade it out to 20 foot. You're going to be $500,000 to widen that road out for half a mile. That's the economic reality of trying to get approvals on new properties on existing infrastructure. 
That being said, you can get exceptions. You can work through the system. It takes months, maybe years. But if you have the time and money, you can sometimes get something to work through. Yes? So teardowns only make op economic sense usually when you're going to reconstruct on the same footprint or similar footprint, and there's an economic restriction to why you can't build a new house instead. In other words, like we're just talking the road example, you can go buy that house, that old junker house on the end of that road, and you can tear down most of it and then rebuild a brand new house at the same location via that path. And now it's a remodel or extensive remodel. You leave like one wall up and it's a, it's a remodel. It's not a new construction. You still have to pay a bunch of permits and fees and other stuff, and you're still going to be limited to the septic system, et cetera, unless you put new septic system in all those factors, but it provides you an economic out of a situation where you couldn't economically build a new house. Regulatory-wise, you can remodel the existing one. That's when teardowns start making sense. Yes, there is removal. Tear down a house, you're probably, oh, I don't know, $15,000, $20,000 really quick to tear down and demo a house. Depends how much money you want to spend in the location. I'm, I have no, I have no uh, familiarity with Class K definition. Um, this is minimal code-spilt houses. What I'm, uh, examples here are what you can minimally build legally in regulated environments. This is probably not by county. Yeah. County. It, there are some class K. Uh, there's, there's, def, there's all kinds of definition local jurisdictions for like low-income housing and those other kind of categories. <laughs> that may be one of those. So I'm sorry, I have no experience with that one. One or two more questions. Yes. Uh, price per square foot modular versus stick built. Modular is usually cheaper from a mobile home factory. They're going to be cheaper to have economies of scale for assembly, and they also have a different set of engineering so they can build it cheaper, if you want to use that term, or a different standard of engineering and parts assembly. They use different wood structure, they use things. I don't consider them quite as good as a stick built house, and you don't have as much customization options, and you do have some move on fees and other costs with that. But at the end of the day, a mobile home usually ends up being, or modular home usually ends up being cheaper than a stick built for the same physical square footage. I was just going to speak to that because I, I would, I, I've built modular homes, mobile homes we would mm -hmm. consider different than modular homes. Because custom built modular homes, you can have them that are every bit as good as stick built, except for the stress that they go under while moving the pieces. Yeah. But they're more expensive actually then stick building inside the the if time is your issue you have three months till the, the snow yeah. hits then it's great because you can have a crew doing your pad and a crew building your house and then it comes together in three yeah. days um but if you're okay to summarize that for the recording if you're doing there are modular homes such as pre-built pre chunks you're put together into a complete house and they're they're usually more expensive than stick built but they do have a great time savings factor, particularly for on-site time. Mobile homes are a little bit different standard, but again, the pre-built modulars aren't usually as common in the custom market. I see those a lot more in the larger tracks and that kind of a thing. They're becoming much more custom. Yeah. Okay. Good effort, I think we're out of time for this. We're starting solar in just a few minutes, in like six, four minutes. So I'm gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.